Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited about the show today. Thanks for tuning in. Well, today we do have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Andrews, a world-renowned scientist who has recently written a phenomenal book, and that book is called Who Made God? So we're going to be talking to Dr. Andrews over the phone in England this morning. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know that it is the Fall Pledge Drive here at KDUR. KDUR has supported this show for about a year and a half, and I've enjoyed doing this show. I've loved the support of Bryant and Sarah and John and Mark, who have all made this show possible. And if you agree that this show is a positive thing to have, I would encourage you to make a donation today. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be whatever you can give but it will help keep this show on the air. You can call in this morning to 970-247-7262. Again, that's 970-247-7262 to make your pledge. Now back to the interview with Dr. Andrews. As I mentioned, today we'll be interviewing Dr. Edgar Andrews, who has a PhD and a Doctor of Science degree. He is a fellow of the Institute of Physics in the UK, a fellow of the Institute of Materials, Minerals, and Mining, a chartered engineer, and a chartered physicist. He was also a consultant for the Dow Chemical Company for 30 years and for 3M for 20 years. He began and chaired the Department of Materials at Queen Mary College, University of London. He later served as the Dean of Engineering for that same university. He's also authored more than 100 scientific papers. He debated Richard Dawkins on the topic of evolution versus creation back in 1986, and Dawkins was still making excuses for that debate as recently as 2007. He's debated other evolutionists and atheists over the years as well. He has written two Bible commentaries and numerous books, including Who Made God, A Glorious High Throne, Free in Christ, Christ in the Cosmos, God, Science, and Evolution, The Spirit Has Come, and From Nothing to Nature. I would encourage you to go to Amazon and pick up some of his books. He is currently pastor of the campus church, Wellwyn Garden City. I recently read and thoroughly enjoyed his newest book, Who Made God? I would encourage you to buy that book and read it. This book is fresh, sharp, intelligent, and witty. Again, please pick it up at Amazon or wherever you buy books. You could also find out more about Dr. Andrews at whomadegod.org. Again, that is whomadegod.org and at campuschurch.org.uk. Again, that is campuschurch.org.uk. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Andrews. Thank you very much for your invitation to participate. I look forward to it. Wonderful. What is your story? How did you come to faith in Christ Jesus? I became a Christian as a student, a university student of 19 years old, I'd not been brought up in a Christian home. It wasn't an anti-Christian home, but it was uh, a neutral one, and I never went to church or had any contact with Christianity. Until in my late teens, I started to attend a local Episcopal church for social purposes, social reasons. They had a, a very nice youth club there. But at some point, and it came at the end of my first year at a university as a physics student, I was seized with 
an intense desire to read the New Testament. And at the time, I had no idea where that desire came from, but it just did. And I felt so urgent about the matter that I, I actually borrowed a copy of the New Testament from one of my friends because I didn't have one myself. And I began to read the Gospels. And as I read, I simply discovered Jesus Christ as a real living person, who at times I felt was right there in the room with me. And I began to talk to him. That was the first time I'd ever prayed. And it was an amazing experience. I spread over a period of some weeks as I read the Bible and I knew the presence of Christ. And that sense of the presence of Christ has, has never left me. I mean, we're talking about 60 years ago. And uh, from that time onwards, I have been a Christian church worker seeking to help others to come to faith in Christ. Wonderful story. So we've all heard the accusation that science and religion don't mix. You're obviously a wonderful scientist. How do you respond to the accusation that science and faith cannot coexist? I hope I'm a living disproof of that proposition. And let me say that I have found very many scientists, both in the academic field and uh, other fields, the industrial science field, who believe in God, uh, like myself. They are believers in the God revealed in the Bible and preeminently in Jesus Christ. I used to be a consultant for the Dow Chemical Company in USA for 30 years. I traveled regularly three or four times a year to the States and I uh, was engaged in consulting work in several locations. And one of the most pleasant experiences was the number of times Dow scientists gathered together and invited me to speak to them about my faith in Christ. Uh, and, and so my experience is quite contrary to this idea that science and religion don't mix. And, and we have to remember also that the very founders of modern science, people like Clark Maxwell, and even coming up to date, Arno Penzias, you may not have heard of him, but he was the uh, Nobel Physics Prize winner, and this is what he said in an article in the New York Times, 12th of March, 1978. The best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. To say that science and faith don't mix is a ridiculous denial, both of personal experience and of history. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I've read many such books on the topic. Your book was one of the freshest, most exciting, best-written books on this topic that I've ever read. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I would encourage all of our listeners to pick up and buy Who Made God? That being said, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book. 
And obviously, the question that jumps out at you when you read the title is, Who Made God? Thank you for your kind remarks. The book was written with the object of correcting the impression in the minds of many non-committed laypeople that in some way science has disproved God, the point we were talking about earlier. My book is deliberately written for the layperson in order to provide them with an in-depth but uh, comprehensible appraisal of the whole subject. I chose the title, Who Made God, because that is the question that is so often asked by skeptics. Richard Dawkins, who I debated way back in 1986 on the subject of creation and evolution, Richard Dawkins continually in his book, The God Delusion, asks the question, and of course he asks it in a glib manner, if God made everything, who made God? In other words, trying to suggest that offering God as an explanation of the creation around us uh, doesn't actually get us anywhere because we then have to explain who made God. But of course, the complete fallacy in that is that according to the Bible, God created time and space, the universe and everything that is in it. And that means God is outside of the material universe. You can say, who made that cake, or who made that noise, or what caused that mountain to rise, all things in the material realm. The question, who made God, is not legitimate, because it is seeking to apply the law of cause and effect to a spiritual realm where that law is not established and has no application. God is unmade. God is eternal. He made everything, but nothing made him. Absolutely. Having studied science, I have often been exposed to outrageous claims of certain individuals that science answers everything. In fact, I recently heard of a student here on our campus who had a professor tell her the only absolute in the universe is science. Now, obviously, there's no scientific experiment that could ever validate that statement, but I wanted to ask you, as a scientist, what are the limits of science? Science, as we know it, restricts itself to the physical realm. Science is concerned with the material universe, nothing else. Now, you can argue, and many do, of course, that... The material universe is all that exists. There is nothing else beside the material universe. In which case, in principle, science is the repository of all knowledge. But of course that is a philosophical assumption that the physical universe is all that exists. I think the vast majority of people feel instinctively that the material universe is not all that exists. We have things like values, things like love and justice, things like music and beauty. What are these? They're not material objects. They're what philosophers call qualia, quality things, our ability to apprehend qualities that are not intrinsic in the material universe. So 
I think we all have an intuition that knowledge or reality, if you like, doesn't stop at the boundaries of science. Although, as I say, if you wish to, you can make philosophical assumption that reality does indeed stop there, and that the kind of things I've referred to as qualia, qualities that we perceive, are simply the byproduct or the waste product almost of the activity of a physical organ, which is the brain. Now, I don't think that many people buy that. It's sold energetically by evolutionary psychologists, but even evolutionists dismiss that and say life and reality does not consist entirely of material things. You cannot reduce reality to the material world only. And, you know, there's a very strong argument to support that. The material universe operates according to the laws of nature. In fact, it is the work of science to discover and research and apply those laws of nature. That's what makes science exciting. It's it's a process of exploration. But where did the laws of nature come from? They are not part of the material universe. They are descriptions of the way the material universe operates. And those descriptions are beautifully mathematical, beautifully logical, beautifully self-consistent, and we perceive them as such. Again, that is part of the excitement of science, that we can begin to explore these things and see the the wonder of them. This is what, what motivated Einstein so much. Uh, that he saw a rationality, if you like, in the universe and in the laws of nature that showed him there was something beyond nature. So the limits of science are represented by the material universe. You may deny that there is anything else, and that makes you an atheist, I suppose, or you may say, "Oh, oh, no, this is... Uh, This is only a small part of reality. There's a great realm of reality that lies outside of the competence of science to describe it. Uh, It is certainly my position. It is the Bible's position. There's nothing inconsistent between the existence of a physical realm and a spiritual realm. But equally, science, because it restricts itself to the material realm, cannot be the whole of reality. There is the other point, of course, which perhaps I should have made right up front, that science has to keep changing its account of nature as more and more is discovered. Uh, Science is not in any way the great authority because uh, science, by its own admission, has to be liable to change, to reinterpret, uh, to correct errors in its theories and ideas. The history of science demonstrates that amply. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Edgar Andrews, who is a world-renowned scientist. It is also our fall pledge drive. If you'd like to make a pledge, you can call in right now at 970-247-7262. Now, as we continue, you talked in your book about the so-called theory of everything. And you related this all back to faith. Would you please tell our audience a little bit about this so-called theory of everything and how it relates to faith? Yes, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The uh, physics 
community, to which I belong, of course, has for a long time, and really ever since the days of Einstein, wanted to find a single theory that comprehended all other physical theories. I mean, a vast number of, of theories in physics and chemistry and biology and uh, astrophysics and astronomy and any branch of science you care to mention, psychology and the like. But is there some fundamental umbrella theory that comprehends everything else and from which all other theories could be, in principle at least, deduced? That's the physicist's holy grail, if you like. And there has been some progress in this, especially in the area of quantum mechanics and the theory of fundamental particles that has managed to unify a whole lot of different phenomena and observations into a single theory, like a corral which manages to gather into its fence a whole range of different animals, if you like. So there is this continual search. The latest candidate for the theory of everything is what's known as superstring theory. I'm not going to go into the details there. But one of the big problems is that the bigger the theory becomes, the more obscure and non-intuitive it becomes. In other words, as you build up these uh, comprehensive umbrella-type theories that seem to cover uh, a whole range of phenomena and observations, you are forced into proposing scenarios that are not explanations because they need explaining themselves. Now, a classic example of this, of course, is Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is an extremely elegant theory covering all gravitational phenomena. And uh, it is a brilliant theory and essentially a very simple theory. That's the kind of thing people are looking for, but to cover everything else, as well as uh, gravity. But in order uh, to advance that theory, Einstein had to introduce the idea of the curvature or distortion or, or, or warping of space-time, thinking of space-time as a four-dimensional continuum where time becomes a kind of pseudo-space, if you like. And he presents his theory in terms of that four-dimensional space-time which is capable of being twisted, distorted, and uh, these distortions give rise to the phenomena of gravitation. Well, now, you see, we're faced with four dimensions, and there are the three that we're perhaps more familiar with. We're faced with the distortion and warping of that uh, space-time continuum. Now, string theory, which I mentioned, is, is another example. It, it has the potential, it's still very much unproven, but it has the potential to unify a lot of things that at the moment can't be unified, like gravity on one hand and quantum mechanics on the other. But in order to work with string theory, you have to introduce 11 dimensions not the three space dimensions that we're used to, but 11 dimensions. And you say, well, where are all the other dimensions? And the answer is, well, they're all curled up into very tiny 
balls that are too small for us ever to observe. And that's under the beginning of the bizarre concepts that have to be introduced in order to make progress with, with string theory. So what you find is that the theory of everything, as we work towards it, depends entirely upon the acceptance of utterly non-intuitive ideas such as the ones I've mentioned. And therefore, in one sense, it's self-defeating. But the, the things you use to explain normal observations like walked space-time and 11 dimensions and, and, and other such things, those things need more explanation than the things that they themselves explain. So, so uh, you're caught in a little bit of a vicious circle here. Now, you say, how does the theory of everything relate to faith? Um, I say I draw that forward in the book a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not totally, because what I'm saying there is that a true theory of everything has to embrace and explain not just the material world, but it has to explain and embrace the numinous world, the world of the mind, the world of, of these quality of these experiences that we all have, the world of such things as love and peace and music and joy, things which make life important to us and things which are not susceptible to explanation by material science. Faith in God is itself a theory of everything because we have God as the creator and the sustainer of the universe and we also have God as the originator of these mental phenomena because God is an intelligent being and he has created us, says the Bible, in his own image. That we are intelligent beings. That's why we can do science or, or any such similar intellectual activity. God or the faith in God is to me the ultimate theory of everything because it does indeed, that faith does embrace everything. I absolutely agree. And from there you go on to describe a sort of God hypothesis. What is the essence of your proposal? The word hypothesis, I think, needs some explanation first and foremost because the word is used in popular conversation to refer to something insubstantial, flimsy. We talk about a mere hypothesis, something that you really don't have to take seriously. But the word hypothesis is actually compounded from two Greek words, one, hypo, meaning beneath or underneath, and thesis being something stated, something built upon, or something to build upon. A foundation, perhaps, is the best word to use there. So this hypothesis in science or any other field, properly understood, is a foundation, is something that is placed beneath in order to support something built upon it. It's a starting point, it's a foundation. And in science, we use it as a starting point for scientific theories. We make some observations, and we say, well, these observations could be explained if this was traceable back to some basic principle. 
And so that basic principle that we, we dream up is our hypothesis, our starting point. It's the foundation on which we then try to build an edifice of established scientific fact. And so you have your hypothesis, and then you start working out predictions from that hypothesis. If this hypothesis is true, then we would expect the following effects. And we can then perform experiments to test whether the hypothesis correctly predicts things or correctly explains things that we already knew but that were not previously explained or not previously well explained by common theories. So the hypothesis can be best thought of as a, a solid foundation on which you then try to build a theory. And what happens, of course, is that you find some results that agree with the predictions of the hypothesis and some that don't. And you have to go back and you have to modify your hypothesis. Uh, you don't, sometimes you have to throw it out completely as something that's utterly wrong. There are plenty of examples in the history of science of, of that having that to be done, like the, um, the theory of the ether and theory of phlogiston. Now, these hypotheses were once held as a received wisdom in science, but they've had to be completely rejected because they've been found to be completely untrue. More normally, however, what you do is go back and modify your hypothesis so as to make it agreeable with the facts as you discover them. Now, what I have done in the book is to say, well, let us advance as an hypothesis that the God of the Bible exists. And I say the God of the Bible because you have to define the word God. It means different things to different people. And so I have said, well, we're free to choose anything as a hypothesis, and therefore I am free to choose the hypothesis that the God of the Bible exists. And, and that's an important qualification because... It is the God of the Bible that we are told in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. It is the God of the Bible that we are told upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, he sustains not only created, but sustains the universe as we know it. The God of the Bible is the one who communicates with man. And when we talk about the gospel, of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the good news. We're talking about God communicating with man. And the letter to the Hebrews begins, doesn't it, that God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And so we have a God who speaks, a God who uses language, as it were, not only human language, but the language that we find in the living cell. Here is a God who is speaking. So in invoking the hypothesis that the God of the Bible exists, we're bringing a, a lot of suppositions in there. And then the purpose of my book is to show how those suppositions, or many of them, the uh, book isn't exhaustive in the subject, but how many of those suppositions are not only fully borne out by the hypothesis of God, uh, but are borne out in an intelligible and consistent manner that atheism cannot begin to approach.
thanks again for being on the show, and thank you again for writing such a phenomenal book. Uh, thank you, Nate. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this morning's show. Again, it is the Fall Pledge Drive. If you'd like to make a pledge, I'll give you that number one last time. That's 970-247-7262. Again, that's 970-247-7262. I'd also like to invite you to New Hope this morning. They meet at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater at 10 a.m. You can join us for Connect on Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125. Remember that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And as I leave you with that thought this morning, I want to encourage you that if some of what Dr. Andrews said this morning really made sense to you, you can put that into application right now by saying, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me for my sins. Please come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says the second you put your trust in him and your faith in him, you will be adopted into his family, and you can expect an abundant life on this planet and an eternal life with him in heaven. I hope you'll take that step this morning. Thanks again so much for listening to The God Solution today, and tune in next week for the second part of our interview with Dr. Andrews. Have a great Sunday.